Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jez. I'm a member here, and it's my privilege to preach God's word to you from Isaiah this morning. First of all, I want to introduce you to a guy called Nate Saint. Who's this guy in front of you? Nate Saint. It's a very American name, that, isn't it? Very American. Um, Now, Nate was um, one of a group of five missionaries in the 50s who sought to bring the good news of Jesus to the Alca tribe in Ecuador. Now, um, this tribe was known for being very hostile to outsiders, and Nate and his friends had spent years in the jungle just making the initial preparations to be able to try and make contact with these guys. Now, eventually, in 1956, um, they did. And these missionaries started a very cautious series of attempts to gain the trust of the people and show them that they were friendly, that they didn't mean any harm. So they, they had a plane, and they dropped gifts over the, um, the village where they lived, um, valuable supplies, axes, cooking pots, even some colorful ribbons. And in turn, to their delight, they received some gifts back from, from the Alka people. So they, they sent them headdresses, they sent them a comb, and even sent them a parrot, which is my favorite of the gifts. It's called a beard scratching. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there are disadvantages to having facial hair. Is that good? good. Excellent. (laughs) So they receive um, gifts back from from the people. And things seem to be going well. They even had a few exchanges with some of the uh, Alka people on on the beach where the missionaries were staying. But just just little groups of them. It was all very cautious. Now, Nate was in charge of um, flying the plane for the group of missionaries. And once, once, whilst he was circling around um, the, the area, he noticed that 10 of the tribesmen were heading toward the beach, 10 of them. So Nate returned to his friends and told them, and everyone was really excited. This is the day they've been waiting for, a proper delegation sent from the village to come and greet them. Unfortunately, though, the orcas weren't there with the intention of a welcome. And a day or two later, the bodies of all five of the missionaries were found, having been speared to death on the beach. Now, what's interesting about that story is that Nate and his pals were armed. They had weapons, they had loaded guns that they carried with them. And they could have easily overcome these tribesmen if they wanted to, when it had become clear that they had hostile intentions. And yet they chose not to. The five men who had previously vowed to each other and they had previously, yeah, they'd vowed to each other and before God that they would not use those weapons to defend themselves against a human attack, even if it meant they died. Now, this sounds crazy to most people, but for Nate and his friends, the rationale was clear. They were there to tell these people about Jesus, and that was the most important thing. That took top priority. And in order to preserve their witness, these five men were not going to take the life of one of these tribesmen who would then die a non-Christian just to save their own. In the midst of real threat, these guys decided to put the gospel first rather than reach for their guns and protect themselves. Now, we're continuing through our series on Isaiah this morning, and our reading today um, just makes us ask a simple question. When we're faced with threats, who will we trust? Where will we find our security? 
Now, whoever you are here this morning, this question is important for you to think about, because um, we, we all at some point go through circumstances that, that threaten us, that make us anxious, and we need to know how to find real security in those times. Um, so there are three sections to this talk today. Who are we going to trust? Harm in the wrong choice, and hope in Emmanuel. So who are we going to trust? Now let's pick up this story in chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, please have a look. And we start this story with the city of Jerusalem under threat. So let's read uh, verses 1 and 2 again. So when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he learns that um, two neighboring nations are coming against him to fight. They're going to siege his city, and he's bricking it, basically. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, particularly, we need to know a little bit about the political situation at the time, so please indulge me while I give you a bit of a history lesson. Um, God's chosen people, the Israelites, have been in the promised land that God promised them and led them to for a long time now. But um, due to a massive in-house rebellion, they split into two kingdoms. So Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. And in Judah was the capital city, Jerusalem, where Ahaz was based. Now, much of Israel and Judah's history had been marked by um, political tension, whether with, with each other or with their neighbors. Um, but at this point in the story, both Israel and Judah had just come to the end of around 60 years of peace. And that was the best they'd had in about, well, in a long time, in a long time, since before the split. Now, this was obviously a good thing, but the problem was is that both Israel and Judah became spiritually complacent. They assumed that the peace that they were enjoying was a sign of God's favor with them. But that actually wasn't the case, and God had told them so repeatedly through prophets. The fact is that both kingdoms had had their fair share of guilt because they had behaved wickedly, particularly with regards to idol worship and serving other gods. Now, out of the two kingdoms, Israel was definitely the worst. But Judah, knowing this, became quite self-righteous and smug and ignorant, therefore, of its own problems. Now, this era of peace that they enjoyed came to an end, an abrupt end, with the rise of the superpower in the region, Assyria. Now, Assyria was nasty. If you kind of imagine um, ISIS, but with less religious fundamentalism and more ruthless efficiency, you've got Assyria. Now, Assyria is based in what we would now call northern Iraq. Now, Assyria had been a sleeping giant for a long time, but under new leadership sort of awoke and wanted to start their campaign to expand their territory throughout the whole Middle East, sweeping through it, invading all the nations, expanding their territory. And this put Israel and Judah directly in the line of fire. And so both nations started to panic. Now what Israel in the north tried to do is they tried to um, start an anti-Assyrian coalition. So they joined up with a neighboring nation, Aram, which is what we would call Syria today. Um, and they also pressured Judah, this coalition, to, to join them because they wanted more nations to join them against the Assyrians. But Judah wasn't really so keen on going up against Assyria. And so what happens is that both Aram 
and Israel, this joint coalition, invade Judah. Now, if you um, want to check it out in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, it tells us that um, the kings of this coalition, Rezin and Pekah, go to Judah and they devastate it for the most part. And they kill many in the outlying settlements. Hundreds of soldiers are killed. They take lots of the um, just normal, common people um, prisoner. And then they turn their eye towards going to Jerusalem to siege it and to depose King Ahaz. And so obviously Ahaz is frightened. And now here, enter Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. He lives in Judah. And um, as we've been learning over the last few weeks, he has been commissioned by God to speak God's words to the people. And so verse 2, if you have a look, tells us that the Lord tells Isaiah and his son to go and meet King Ahaz. And they're to go and they're to reassure him. Ahaz doesn't need to worry about Aram and Israel because despite the threat, they're not going to be successful. So let's just read verses four and seven again, four to seven again. So say to him, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, say to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Rezin and Pekah may want to tear Judah apart, but uh, it's not going to happen, basically. Not under God's watch. The Lord describes them as nothing more than, than the sort of smoldering remains of a bonfire. All the flames are gone. They're, they're past it, essentially. I mean, Israel and Aram are going to be out of the picture soon enough. And no matter what their intentions are, they're not going to succeed in fully defeating Judah. Don't be afraid, Ahaz is told. But he's also given a warning. Look at the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So Ahaz is kind of at a crossroads right now. God has told him that he's going to deliver him from this uh, coalition army, but he must stand firm in trusting God. Otherwise, he and his nation are going to fall. Now, why would, why would Isaiah have to say this to Ahaz? Well, the fact is, is that Ahaz is going to be very tempted to, simply, to not simply take God at his word, but to take matters into his own hands to secure the kingdom. Now, we know behind the scenes that Ahaz's court was a little bit pro-Assyrian, um, so he might be considering an appeal to the Assyrian king to come and help out. Now, this was a, a risky move. This is like the sort of mouse going to the cat for help. Um, but maybe Assyria would be helpful. Who knows? I mean, they've got the bigger army. They could probably chew up the coalition and spit them straight back out. They wouldn't be a problem. I mean, Judah might even be able to make some form of peace with Assyria through a treaty. I mean, if Judah agrees to sort of cower and, and be... Yes, submit themselves under Assyrian authority. They might be all right. The problem here, though, is that doing so would be going expressly against what God had commanded the people to do. The whole point of Israel being a nation was to be distinct from the pagan nations around them in order that the other nations would see what God is truly like and why he's different to all the other gods. But a treaty with Assyria would destroy this Judah would have to absorb Assyrian religious practices. They would have to worship their gods. It would be state-sanctioned idolatry, basically. Any distinctiveness would be gone. 
and they're mission compromised. So, as we said, Ahaz is at a crossroads. He has the biggest threat of his life hanging over his head, and he has a choice. He can either take God at his word and believe that he will sort out Aram and Israel and stand firm, not selling out to the Assyrians, or he can solve matters his own way, make a deal with the devil, as it were, with Assyria, but compromise Judah's identity in the process. In simpler terms, Ahaz's choice is this. He will either put his trust in God and do what according to what God says, which in this case is nothing, as in he should do nothing, or take matters into his own hands and find his own security. Now, uh, nearly 3,000 years on from this event, um, we face essentially the same choice. Now, granted, it's not massively likely that the city of Manchester will fall victim to a siege, although I wouldn't want to give our Liverpudlian friends any ideas. <laughs> but we still have things that threaten us, and we all have to choose how to deal with them. So let me ask you a question. What threatens you? What are the things that loom over your head? What are the things that make you anxious? And when you're threatened, where do you find your security? Now, for some of us, the, uh, the threats are obvious. Uh, there may be people in this room that face redundancy, for example, or ill health, um, or financial ruin. And in each of these cases, there will be a way of trusting God and acting according to what he says, or dealing with it your own way. For a lot of us, though, I imagine the threats we face are a bit more subtle. So I'm just going to sort of ad hoc choose three. We may be threatened by worthlessness, by loneliness, or ridicule. Worthlessness. Now, this can crop up dead easy when you're at work in your job. You may constantly worry that you're not um, a valuable employee, that you're not actually good at what you do at your job. And now, under that sort of threat, what do you do? Do you trust God? Do you work hard, as the Bible commands us to do, but keeping in mind that your identity isn't in your job status, but it's fixed in Christ? Or do you try and solve it another way? Maybe by obsessing about it, increase, working increasingly harder and, and longer hours. What about, um, what about being at home? Uh, a number of us here are parents, and the burden of wanting to be a good mum or dad might cause constant anxiety and be something that threatens us. You might feel pressured when your kids don't perform well at school or when you just don't know how to handle the relentlessness of caring for a new baby. How do you deal with this? Again, do you choose to trust God, that your identity is secure in Jesus, that it's not based in how good a parent you are? Or do you try and deal with it your own way? Maybe you play the comparison game. You find others who are worse parents than you and you sort of look down on them in order to sort of give yourself a bit of a confidence boost, because at least I'm not like them, you know. What about loneliness? Now, this, this can affect you whether you're single or married. Um, if you're without a partner, you may look at the prospect of long-term singleness with nothing other than utter dread. If you're married, you may be lonely. You might not be able to find the connection that you desire with your spouse. Again, what do we do? Do we deal with our loneliness God's way? Bearing in mind that actually no one can ever fully satisfy us other than Jesus. Or do we take matters into our own hands? Maybe enter into a relationship with someone who's not a Christian. Maybe 
Let yourself give in to adulterous fantasies or actions. What will you do? Finally, ridicule. Now, here I'm particularly thinking of the context of being with our non-Christian mates and family. Um, Being open about our Christian beliefs and values risks us being mocked or being shunned or even worse. For many of us, that's a real threat. We can be controlled by what other people think of us and it can be really stressful, the idea of being called out in that way. None of us want to be seen as religious nutjobs. And um, in talking about our faith, we certainly don't want to be guilty of the uh, middle-class unforgivable sin of being awkward. So what do we do? Do we trust in God and, and seek to keep an appropriate but faithful witness? Or just shy away from ever really mentioning the God stuff in your life um, in order to keep ourselves safe and sheltered from any form of derision? Whatever it is that threatens you, like Ahaz, we have a choice. We either put our security in God and what he says, or take matters into our own hands. Harming the wrong choice. Well, what happened with Ahaz then? Well, Isaiah had warned Ahaz that if he didn't stand firm in his faith, he wouldn't stand at all. But it doesn't just stop there in terms of how God speaks to Ahaz. Um, He goes one step further. Have a look in your Bibles at verse 10 and verse 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Now, this is fairly astonishing, to be honest. Um, Look at how gracious God is with Ahaz. He's already told him that Israel and Aram won't be a problem, and his word should be enough to, to trust him. But God's willing to go the extra mile. He's even to go even further just to assure Ahaz. Ask me for a sign, God says. Seriously, anything you want, and I'll give it to you just to make it crystal clear that you can trust me. Now, that's an offer, isn't it? That's an offer. I bet most of us would love the chance to ask God for a sign to reassure us that he's got our backs. So what's Ahaz's response? Well, look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. What? (laughs) God himself commands Ahaz to ask him for a sign to confirm his care. He's prepared to literally move heaven and earth in order to reassure this guy. And he just goes... Nah, I'm all right, actually, I think. (laughs) On balance, (laughs) I think I'll be fine. It's bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Now, don't be fooled by Ahaz's pious language, talking of not wanting to put the Lord to the test. He wouldn't be putting the Lord to the test because the Lord has told him to ask for a sign. The truth is, Ahaz has already made up his mind um, what he's going to do. Um, I'm just putting up. A passage from one Kings, two Kings, sorry, that explains the historical background of what Ahaz actually ended up doing. So it says um, there, then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Romalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. And then look at verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. So Ahaz, even, he'd even sell 
the gold that was kept for God in the temple in order to secure himself, rather than trusting God. He did sell out to Assyria. In the end, he chose to sort out things his own way, and in the process, abandoned God and compromised his people. Now, this is a a fairly stupid move for Ahaz. And the following verses make that really clear. I mean, listen to the the response in in verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. That's the sort of reference to all the kings, um, particularly Ahaz. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God at all? Um, Also. So God reaches out his hand to help Ahaz, and Ahaz basically leaves God hanging. Now, with this act of disobedience, enough is enough for God. This is going to be a turning point for Judah, and things are not going to go well. Now, moving on in the passage, verse 14 to 16, um, God says he will send his sign. He will send the sign regardless, and we'll get to that in a sec. And as promised, Aram and Israel will be defeated. But in punishment for their wickedness, God is going to bring disaster. And that disaster, verse 17, will come through the one thing that they thought would save them, Assyria. And that section in verses 18 to 25 outline what's going to happen. Judah will be attacked both by Egypt and Assyria. They're depicted like um, a swarm of flies and bees that just sweep through the land. The Assyrians will take people captive. They'll publicly humiliate them by shaving them head to foot. The land will become desolate. There'll be hardly any people or animals living there. Where there was once cultivated soil, there'll just be briars and thorns because there'll be no one there to work the land. This is what awaits Judah for turning its back on the Lord. And this is what you get when you trust your enemy. And this is exactly what Isaiah had warned Ahaz about. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. And all this serves, what this serves to illustrate is simple. There is no security in putting your trust in anyone other than God. And everything else will eventually harm you. Now, we're not really much better than Ahaz most of the time, are we? Um, as Christians, we know that we should put our security in the Lord. We, we know what the Bible says often about the things that threaten us. And yet we still seek security in other things. But there's no security in Assyria And anything that we trust, rather than Jesus, will harm us. Let's think about a couple of those scenarios we mentioned earlier and the ways we try to sort of take matters into our own hands. Take that burden of trying to be a good employee. If you deal with that threat by obsessing about your job and overworking, you basically just increase um, the chances of eventual burnout. You'll also be more likely to neglect the other areas of your life, your marriage, your children, your church family. If you deal with the threat of worthlessness by playing the comparison game, whether that's with other parents or spouses or Christians, that'll harm you as well. You'll look down smugly on those you perceive to be worse than you, but feel bitterness and resentment to those who you think are better than you. And a sustained attitude like this only shrivels you up. Your capacity to love other people will diminish because you'll always be in constant mental competition with them. Not trusting in God harms us. But it's not just us that's harmed, it's our witness that's harmed as well. See, Ahaz's refusal to take God at his word was always going to end in Judah being damaged, but it didn't just affect them. 
Remember, their witness was damaged. If Judah goes running to Assyria and its idols for help, then how can the Lord be proclaimed as the true God? How can God be shown to be sufficient? Well, he can't, can he? If his people go elsewhere. And if Judah aren't going to be spiritually distinct, how are the other nations going to see what it's like to be one of God's people? What it's like to belong to him? Well, they're not. And they'll be left without hope. And this is much a danger for us. Not trusting in God will damage our witness. And this is particularly true when it comes to that threat of ridicule that we were thinking about earlier. If we fear rejection so much, we just never talk to our mates about the good news. Then they, just never, they will never get a chance to see how good Jesus is. Not from us, anyway. And they won't get a chance to turn to him as the only true source of life. If we want to love and serve our friends and family, we can't put our value in what they think of us. And we must deal with that threat of rejection by trusting God. If not, our witness is harmed, they won't be served, and more importantly than that, God won't even be honored. So when we're threatened, our security must be in God, and all other options will only harm us and harm our witness. Are you feeling guilty enough yet? Well, Hope in Emmanuel. Is that it for Judah then? Is that the end of the end of the game over? Are they compromised, ready for judgment without a hope? Well, not quite. Intertwined within this message of judgment, God still gives his sign. And it's concerning a child to be born. Let's read verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, this name Emmanuel literally means God with us. So here is the promise of a child who will be the embodiment of God being with his people. Now, that's good news if you're part of Judah at this time to hear that, knowing what's coming, knowing what's around the corner. God still wants to be with his people. Now, this is fairly stunning, given the fact that Judah aren't exactly worthy of God hanging out with them. And now, of course, as many of you already know, the gospel writers saw in this passage um, a direct prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Matthew, we're told um, of, of Jesus' mother, Mary, being a virgin and yet conceiving. And Matthew says that this happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, and then quotes this passage. Now, as a bit of a technical aside, we have a bit of a problem here. Because if you read the passage carefully, it seems like this child cannot be referring to Jesus. Look at verse 16. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. So this child is supposed to be born before Aram and Israel are destroyed. I mean, that's the point of the sign. It's relevant to the people living at the time. Not Jesus' time, which is like 700 years later. So, is this about Jesus, or is it not about Jesus? Well, upon closer inspection, it seems like Isaiah has a double fulfillment in mind. Now, on one hand, um, there was a child to be born in Ahaz's day. And this child is likely to be Isaiah's second son, the uh, pithily named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, or Baz for short. Now, in chapter 8, there's a parallel with the description of the child in this chapter. So just put that up on the screen. So it talks about, um, 
in this, in this passage in seven, that before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land, of the, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. But then in Isaiah 8, 4, in the next chapter, it says, before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, talking about Baz, um, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So it does seem that at least in, the, in a partial fulfillment, that partial fulfillment is in Isaiah's son, Baz. And this also works because there's a little bit of ambiguity on the word virgin in Hebrew, so that it can mean young woman. So in this sense, the prophecy can be fulfilled in Baz. But within the larger context of Isaiah, this Emmanuel motif sort of crops up again. Now, this figure is seen as rising far beyond any of the current political circumstances. In chapters 8 and 9, Emmanuel is seen in the distant future, reigning over the whole world, long after the Israelites have not only gone into exile, but have come back again. So this is way in the future. And Isaiah knows that there must be a greater significance then to what he's just talking about at the time. And so it's in this larger and more profound sense that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Emmanuel promise. So 700 years after Ahaz, God does come again to the people of Judah, as he promised. And the virgin does give birth to a son. Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, he comes to earth and is born to a, a peasant Jewish family. Now, at this time, the, uh, the Judeans are still oppressed and they're still threatened, not by Assyria or Aram or Israel this time, but by Rome. And yet Jesus comes to earth and gets his hands dirty among them. He lives amongst them. He teaches them. He heals their sicknesses. He offers them true eternal life and also deliverance, not ultimately from the Roman occupation, but from their own sins including the tendencies they have to trust in other things. There's forgiveness available. Jesus dies for the sins of his people on the cross and then rises again three days later, showing that he can conquer even death. And so for all who put their trust in him, um, Jesus offers true, eternal security. So let me ask you another question. Knowing the threats that you face, what sign would you ask for from God to assure you of his care? Well, according to Isaiah, the ultimate sign has already been given to you. His son, Jesus, Emmanuel, has been given to you. Even though we're a room full of Ahazes who would often rather run to Assyria for our security than God, the Lord still wants to be with us. And he offers forgiveness, hope, and true security in Jesus. Now, knowing God is with us in Jesus transforms the way we deal with our threats. Because firstly, we know that Jesus, as God with us, is human. And he can sympathize with us. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' life, you'll know that he was a guy who knew a little bit about being threatened. The religious leaders tried to kill him multiple times during his ministry. And of course, ultimately succeeded. He faced ridicule. He was mocked by Jew and Gentile alike, hung naked on a cross. And he knows what loneliness is as well. He died alone. He was abandoned by all his friends. Even his father turned the face away as he bore our sin. I don't know what battles and threats that you guys face, but I do know that Jesus knows. <laughs> 
And I know that he cares because for you, he gave his own life. He suffered threats for you. But he offers more than a limp hand on the shoulder. Christ does more than just sympathize. He's not just human, he's God as well. And Christian, he works for you. He rules on high and controls all events as the sovereign king of the whole universe. And nothing happens outside his plan. And therefore, nothing happens to us outside his plan. Do you not know what it says in Scripture that he works everything for the good of those who love him? Everything. No threat comes into your life without the Son of God being in control of it. And ultimately, using it to teach you, to grow you, to make you more like him. And he won't stop doing that until you're safe with him in eternity. Now, that, that's security. And with this kind of security, we can trust him amidst our threats. We don't need to run to Assyria, because we know that whatever happens, we are ultimately safe. We can trust that his commands are good, and keep them, even if it doesn't seem to bring the relief that we want in the short term. You know what? Maybe ill health will take you over. Maybe you will face loneliness. Maybe your friends will ostracize you for being a Christian. But if you have faith in Christ, nevertheless, your hope is secure. Nate Saint and his friends knew this. Um, and that's why they didn't go for their guns that day at the beach in Ecuador. Now, as it turns out, um, Nate had a son, Steve. And Steve also went to work with these tribesmen. And he became friends with the same guys who'd murdered his father. Since that event happened, at least half of them had become Christians. After the killings, the widow of one of those who was murdered, um, a woman called Elizabeth Elliot, and another lady attempted again to contact and live with these people, and they succeeded. They were allowed into the village. And part of the reason for them being accepted was because these people were so shaken up by the realization that these missionaries could have shot them and they didn't. They had to know the answer. Why would these foreigners let themselves be killed rather than kill? And this led Elizabeth and others to share the good news of another man, Jesus, who gave his life to benefit others. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, whatever threat you face, our only hope is to trust in Christ. Put your faith in him and nothing else. You'll be secure and he will be honored. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that your son Jesus is our only sure hope. And we thank you, Lord, that you forgive us for when we're like Ahaz. And we thank you that what you offer is, is secure and gives us the strength to deal with all the various circumstances that we go through. Please help us to put our trust in you, Lord. Please forgive us for when we've not done so. Help us to look at the Lord Jesus and be amazed and strengthened and encouraged. Please bless us, Lord. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, 
visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.